But the point is, is that this country has historically invested in white communities. The creation of the Federal Housing Authority, in which $120 billion worth of home loans were subsidized for white families between uh, 1934 and 1962. The GI Bill, the Dawes Land Allotment. I mean, um, the Homestead Act, the list goes on. And so we've seen time and time again, this country invests in the development of wealth for white people and white families, and then divest from the development of wealth for families of color. Um, and when you say legal, the last thing I'll say on this, like people say, well, it was made illegal. Well, I mean, the 14th Amendment was passed <laughs> a long time before the Civil Rights Act. And the 14th Amendment says that everyone receives equal protection of the law. And so if policy was the be all end all of ensuring that racism didn't exist, are people suggesting that when the 14th Amendment was uh, ratified, that, that there was no racism in this country? What's up, friends and damn givers? Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and as always, this is the show where I chat with people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. I truly hope that today's conversation will help you give a damn in your world today. My guest this week is the wonderful Matthew Kincaid. Matthew is an educator and activist who has been leading anti-racism workshops for over 14 years. Matthew is the founder, CEO, and chief consulting officer for Overcoming Racism, an organization that works to develop culturally responsive schools and practitioners. Overcoming Racism works with schools and organizations to provide intensive race and equity training, consulting, and providing schools with the tools to address the reality of systemic racism both inside and outside of the classroom. It's a wonderful, wonderful organization. And I was first introduced to Matthew through a video I found on YouTube. It's a video of a Black Solidarity Day speech entitled The Harvest is Plentiful but the Workers Are Few that he gave at Tufts in 2009. And here's my favorite part from that speech. It's time to stand up and water those seeds for the future generations. Because someone died watering your seed. Someone cried while they watered yours. Someone was lynched to water your seed. Someone went to jail watering yours. I refuse to let weeds kill the harvest that was planted in my name. I refuse to celebrate while thousands of my brothers and sisters cannot join us here today in colleges. I refuse to celebrate as we tend our crops with apathy, ungratefulness, and complacency. So yes, the title of my speech can be found in Matthew 37, verse nine. Mm -hmm. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The entire speech got me so pumped up, that section especially. Go to YouTube and Google Matthew Kincaid to find the rest of that speech or find it in the show notes. I'll link to it there. Before we jump into the conversation today, I want to give a shout out to this week's sponsor, RedCap. They've been sponsoring for a few weeks now. They're amazing. They're a fantastic company that makes workwear and uniforms. Not only is RedCap a Nashville-based company, which of course I love because I live here right now, but they champion the men and women who are out there committed to making our communities thrive. Everything they make, from work shirts to coveralls, is crafted with purpose and on purpose. 
They are no bullshit company. What you see is what you get. And what you get is a group of people who genuinely give a damn about life and a life done right. I love RedCap. I know you will also. And they've sponsored this show for the last few weeks, and it's almost over. So until July 31, that's coming up, you can get 20% off your first purchase at redcap.com using the promo code GIVEADAM. That's redcap.com. Use the promo code GIVEADAM from now until July 31, 20% off your first order. And I also worked with them a couple months ago to interview amazing damn givers that are beautifully contributing to their communities during this pandemic. You can see more from that series called From the Front Lines. You can see more of that at redcap.com slash community. Go check it out. Wonderful videos, interviews, and snippets there. Okay, I am super thrilled for you to meet Matthew today. He is a damn giver through and through. Ready or not, you're about to drink from a fire hose. So much is about to come at you. Let's jump right in, shall we? You can contact me anytime at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'd love to hear from you. And here's my conversation with Matthew Kincaid. Let's go. Matthew Kincaid, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on this Sunday. Yes, yes. Thanks hey. for taking some of the weekend to uh, spend with Absolutely. us. Good, good. My first introduction to you was a somewhere around seven minute video on YouTube of your Black Solidarity Day speech uh, <laughs> from your days back at Tufts. You, it, the this talk was entitled, the, I think it was called The Harvest is Plentiful, but the Workers are Few. And it was a wonderful, I'm, I'm, I'm going to either put some of it or all of it, the audio in the introduction for this conversation, because I really think before people even spend time with us on this show, them hearing you again, 11 years ago as a student, <laughs> uh, communicating these wonderful ideas at, you know, at school, it was fantastic. Uh, and so much has happened since those days back at Tufts, right? Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> That's definitely some nostalgia. Uh, you've done your research. That's definitely a throwback. You know, I think one of the things that's really important about this moment and understanding this moment is that a lot of times we don't have conversations about race. Yeah. But then oftentimes when we do, we have these conversations in a vacuum. And so we don't put them in their historical context. And so, you know, what people are seeing happening across the country right now is building for years and, and conversations that we've been having for years and activists have been passing down this work for, you know, decades and decades and centuries. So um, to look back 11 years ago and see that, you know, I was still <laughs> leading the work that I'm leading now is disheartening that like, you know, this work feels so perpetual, but it's also encouraging to understand that, you know, how much better am I today than I was as an activist then. So I feel like yeah. I have a little bit more room for impact. I've been thinking a lot about legacy and talking about it. And I think one of the things that people that give a damn must realize, I mean, all, all humans must realize this, but people that want to uh, be part of long-term change have to realize that many of, so much of the fruit of our labor will out like we won't even see the fruits of our labor yeah right and that's when like shit gets real because you have to really be in it knowing that you might not see the fruits of your labor i mean you know just just last week ct vivian and john lewis you know passed away at the ages of 80 and 95 
and they both walked with Dr. King, right? They both marched with Dr. King. They spent time with him and Dr. King died decades ago. He yeah. never, John Lewis and C.T. Vivian aren't, they haven't seen the full fruit of their labor, right? And yeah. you know, one of their, one of their colleagues, Dr. King died decades ago, not being able to see yeah. even, even what John Lewis has been able to see since then, right? It's this weird thing that we are working for something that we won't get to enjoy. Yeah, you know, when John Lewis passed away, I was just reflecting on what he meant to his movement, what he went to, meant to me. Um, and, you know, I went back and listened to Dr. King's, I've been to the mountaintop speech, which he gave on April 3rd, 1968, the night before he was killed, you know, at the Lorraine Motel. And he kind of ended this speech by saying effectively, you know, that obviously he wants to live a long life. He says longevity has his place, but he's not afraid to die. You know, he's saying he's been to the mountaintop. He's seen the promised land. And he tells everyone, like, I may not get there with you, but like, we're going to get there. Um, and then obviously he's murdered. So it's almost this strange prophetic moment that he's kind of eulogizing himself. But, you know, um, John Lewis lived, I want to say like somewhere between like 52 more years after that statement. Um, and he still didn't die in that promised land. And honestly, you know, quite the contrary in terms of some of the policy-based steps this country is taking in this current administration. So it's hard to see someone like John Lewis fight for his entire life and, uh, you know, not get to fully experience the world that he fought for. But at the same time, he's given and passed the, you know, given the tools and passed that battle down to the next generation. Um, and I think that we're going to make some significant progress. Yeah, I hope so, man. I hope so. Look, we, we have so much to dive into, but before we do that, let's get to know you a little bit, you know, pre all of this, right? And so go back as far as you want to. Tell us about the the who, what, when, where, and why of Matthew Kincaid's life. Like, how did you become the the person you are today? Yeah, you know, this is an interesting um, question because I think it's interesting when you do uh, anti-racism work and when you've been doing it for a period of time, people are always curious about how you got into this quote-unquote line of work. And for me, that story is a little bit complicated because I've been doing this effectively for as long as I can remember. Um, I grew up in a pretty much all black neighborhood in St. Louis, Missouri, went to majority white schools for most of my life. And so the stark um, contrast between my home environment and the environment that I experienced in school was always something that was of interest to me um, and trying to understand why the realities in my neighborhood were so different from the realities you know, when I would visit friends or when I would go to school. Um, and so you see the disparities in your daily life. And most of the adults are either unwilling to explain those disparities to you or can't because they themselves haven't uh, assessed or now analyzed this. Like, I think I had a black teacher in kindergarten, but I didn't have a black core content subject teacher again until I was a senior in high school. Mm. And so, you know, the parallels of like systemic racism in schools has always been something that's kind of run through my life. But when I was 14 years old, I went to this leadership program called Anytown. I met a woman by the name of Sharice Jackson who ran that program, who put a lot of faith in me um, and I mean, many young people. And, you know, she trained us to teach and uh, facilitate conversations around racism and sexism and classism and heterosexism. And so I did that throughout high school and continued to be an activist in college. And then 
when I moved to New Orleans to teach, um, that was really a place where I feel like this passion was crystallized into more of a concrete purpose of working to end racism in schools because I saw my community in New Orleans, a community of dedicated, brilliant, curious, um, bright young students who faced obstacles that, you know, your, your average person couldn't even imagine mm. um, due to no fault of their own, due to broken systems and structures that existed outside of schools. And then the ways in which those broken systems and structures were reflected inside of schools. And so, you know, we started doing anti-racism training at my school as a necessity um, and had really dramatic results as a result of that. And then, you know, started to support other schools across the city and then across the country. Um, and now even in some cases globally. So, you know, this work was founded not because of any sort of like, um, I wanted to do something different, but because it was just the natural progression of everything I've done in my life. Like this was the next step of how can I make the most impact in, in shifting and in, in hoping to end these systems and structures. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Uh, let's talk about, uh, so over, so a huge part of your work is overcoming racism. Uh, not just the act of overcoming racism, but the organization overcoming racism, which you are known for, and it's the work that you do. How did that begin? At what point in this story did that, again, you've been doing this work for 14, 15 years, um, yeah. as long as you can remember. And uh, but, but when did overcoming racism become a part of uh, your life and your work? And now your, I don't, for lack of a better term, your brand, this is who you are. This sure, is yeah. You do. Um, as I said, you know, I, I think about my students and, you know, I think that they are the driving force of this work because I always, you know, I think kids are oftentimes a really profound mirror. And when you're a teacher and you're standing in front of a room of students, a lot of times we look at these students and we want to say, well, you know, if we could fix this about this kid's life, or if we could change this about this kid's life, or if um, we teach in a particular way, um, you know, such that these kids can have access to a quality education, then like, that's all they'll need. But in reality, like, I think that far more than anything else, you're seeing a reflection of yourself and your kids. Um, and so, you know, what they rise to or um, where they go is oftentimes has a lot to do with who we are and what we believe in and how hard we're willing to work to close the gap of the fact that this country has divested in the education of black and brown children for mm -hmm. once again, centuries. And so we're talking about a significant debt that exists in the education space that, are, that we're expecting our kids through hard work to overcome. And when I say that these kids worked hard, I mean, like it's an understatement. They went to school earlier than I ever went to school. They got to school at like seven o'clock in the morning. Some of them being bused from across town, which means you have to wake up at five in the morning to get your sibling ready for their bus. And then you have to go in on the bus stop, be on the bus for like two hours before you get to school, go to school until 4.30, in some cases five, short and recess. Like the school structures that existed when I first started teaching in the city of New Orleans, um, I mean, weren't did not were not conducive for building places where kids could be critical thinkers or curious. So um, I found it overcoming racism because I wanted because I could I could not exist in a schooling structure that wasn't based on the assets that our kids bring to school versus trying to you know manufacture deficits in children or communities. Um, and so I found overcoming racism to help that dream become a reality in schools all over the country.
What exactly does your uh, work in programs look like? Like, what are the kinds of things that you do to help? Uh, and it's just not, and it's not just kids too, because I'm learning from you. And and now, you know, this platform is growing. More and more people are, more and more different kinds of people are going to be learning from you. But what does the program look like? How do these uh, young people participate in the work that you're doing? And kind of how do they, how are they led through this program? Yeah. So we actually are working with primarily teachers, school administrators. Um, superintendents of districts, um, entire state education departments. And the goal is, well, the, the belief system is that, you know, people are far more likely to adapt to the culture of an institution than an institution is to adapt to the culture of the individuals within it. Mm. This is why you can have a business or a company or a school that's full of really good, great, amazing people, right? You've worked really hard to hire nice people and everybody gets along and you feel like everything's great but yet outcomes are still showing disparities between either employees of color or in this case, between our students of color. Um, and that's because we still have systems and structures and policies in most of our businesses or workplaces or schools that are informed by white supremacy. So um, if it doesn't matter who's working under that structure, right, we conform to the systems and structures of our places of work. And I think in the school arena, we see that the brunt of the fact that we still have these racist policies lands on the bodies and spirits and the minds of black and brown children. So things like higher suspension and expulsion rates for similar misbehaviors, the fact that black girls are four to eight times more likely to be arrested in school than their white counterpart for a similar misbehavior. The fact that boys make up 80% of the suspensions in this country, but black girls are suspended at a higher rate than white boys. Um, and you can look across pretty much any, any indicator, whether it be literacy rates, um, whether it be like AP, access to AP classes, access to you know, uh, advanced sciences, certain mathematics courses. This is like, even if the kid wanted to take these courses, we know that statistically, if you're born black and go to a predominantly black school system, the likelihood of you having those programs, foreign language programs is less, and the likelihood that you're interfacing with a less experienced teacher goes up. So. Um, you know, we're fighting systemic realities. And so the work that we do takes a systemic approach, which means that we do equity audits, which is like a review of company policies, system structures, hiring policies um, in schools curriculum. We do anti-racism intensives, which most people call these trainings, but you know, it's less about like training someone to do something and more about heart and mind change. That is also the change that helps people to facilitate and work within anti-racist systems and structures. So these intensives are educational opportunities to help to raise our collective literacy around issues of race because people have the will to do this. I mean, in some ways, I think we're seeing across our country, finally, we're seeing more people saying we have the will to think about these things, to talk about these things, to make the necessary changes. It's just a lot of people don't know what to do yep. because we've never been educated in these things. And so those, the purpose of those intensives you know, I think people think about anti-racism training as like, oh, teach someone to not be racist. And then if less people are racist, then everything will be fixed. But it's not that. It's we have to create people who are skilled enough to exist in structures that are anti-racist. And most of us um, haven't ever lived or existed in structures that are anti-racist. So it's uncomfortable, right? It's going to take an adjustment um, because we're used to things the way that they have always been. That's a huge, huge point. Right now, Matthew, uh, and I'm sure you've heard this way more than I have, but what I've been dealing with the last like few months as I've been, uh, you know, trying myself to become a, you know, I've kind of identified myself as an anti-racist in training these last few months 
And also, you know, I've been having incredible conversations with amazing black leaders on the podcast and otherwise what the, I've gotten a, a, a pushback from, uh, and this is not a dig on this kind of person. I'm just stating a fact, 100% white males have pushed back on a lot of the things that I've been saying. And the big pushback is systemic racism doesn't exist. It doesn't exist <laughs> because Civil Rights Act doesn't exist because of the 60s. It doesn't exist because of the work of Dr. King. Like we did it. Not that there aren't racial, that, that, not that there aren't racist people, but systemic racism doesn't exist, which is obvious. It, it's so obvious to me that that's bullshit. It's so obvious to me that just because you make something a law, does not mean that, that all these systems and structures and these ways of thinking and people in power are not still implementing these things. You just pointed it out in the school system. This right. pointed out how prevalent systemic racism is in our school system. Now we can go to every system, the police system, the government, we can go to every single system that exists, mass incarceration and see systemic racism. But for some people, for some reason, there's a whole bunch of people out there that don't believe that it exists because it's not legal anymore. Let's talk about that. How does it, I sure. just, I just, I just wrapped up uh, reading Michelle Alexander's wonderful work, the new Jim Crow 2010. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's 10 years old, but it's still very, 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 very relevant. Um, and so let's talk for, about that for a second. You know, imagine that there are a hundred white dudes that think that they're doing black people a favor by saying it doesn't, systemic racism doesn't exist anymore. So stop succumbing to that lie. You can do and be better than this. Speak to them for a second. Yeah. You know, it's funny because you're asking me to do something that I actually don't do very often. Um, because I actually think that the white men who are perhaps, or just anybody, quite frankly, because I've seen people of color sure. um, pair at some of these same talking points. Um, and obviously, like, there are some famous people of color who are famous for promoting, you know, white supremacist ideas and ideals. Yes. And so there's a market for that. And the reason why I don't typically talk to this group, because I actually think that people in this group actually do critically know and understand that systemic racism exists. Um, I, don't, I don't think that it's hard to see the disparities that exist in this country and anyone who has even a cursory understanding of both history and the policy making of today would critically understand that like either you believe that certain groups of people are born inferior or certain groups of people are born superior. <laughs> like either you believe that, which would be racism. One hundred percent. Right. Like which is like the foundation of racism. Honestly, we've we know that eugenics and all the studies that say that like we know that we are all the same, other than the fact that some people have more melanin than other people. That race is a yep. social construct that is made up. So I don't think that I don't think that there are many people who actually believe this talking point. I think that this is a talking point that for folks who like don't have a critical understanding of systemic racism is appealing. And so it's a talking point that people use to, you know, protect their comfort to not have the conversation. But if I were to talk to people who said the systemic racism didn't exist, I mean, I think there's a lot of different perspectives to look at this from. The first thing is that racism is actually, first and foremost, a system of advantage. And so when we talk about systemic racism, you could hypothetically wipe out all the disadvantages that people of color experience because of systemic racism. But at the same time, if those advantages that white people experience as a result of the system or structure, then like those are still in existence. And so 
I could go through like some of these. I mean, there's a study from 2004 about employment where they, um, this is from the American Journal of Sociology, and they sent out um, resumes are identical, except the resume with the white sounding name had a criminal conviction and the resume with the black sounding name did not have a criminal record. And so um, I would guess I, I wish I could share my screen with you because I have like a bunch of these statistics just for when this very same conversation comes up. And so the white person without, sorry, the white person with a criminal record had a 3% higher chance of getting a job callback than the black person with no criminal record. So that's 17% to 14%. The black person um, with the criminal record had a 5% chance of getting a job callback. So a 12% disparity between the black person with the criminal record and the white person whose resume indicated they had a criminal record. Um, but still in this, in this particular study, um, it indicated that a white person with a criminal record with the same resume had a higher chance of getting a job callback. So then later, this study is done by Oxford and they come out and says that resumes with white sounding names in the United States have a 50% chance higher, 50% higher chance to get a job callback interviews and the racial gap is uniform across occupation, industry and size. Um, let's see, here's, let's see what else we have here. Oh, this is a really good one. We have studies from Demos that says, so one of the, some of the main myths that you hear a lot of times in society, I think you're talking a little bit about this like victim mentality, is that there, there's three things that you can do. If you do these things in the United States, then like you will be successful, right? One thing is if you can get married, hold down a steady job, and then get an education, all right? And yep. so in this demo study, and I'll send you these slides so you can potentially put them in the, the video. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to um, put them in the video or just link them to uh, the, the show notes yeah, or whatever. Well, this, yeah, you can link them to the study. This is a really good study. So let's do the marriage thing first, right? And so there's this obviously you know, racist stereotype about, well, the problem with the black community is the fathers aren't in the home and you know, um, it's not racism. It's just, it's, it's a problem of uh, divestment from the nuclear family, right? Yep. Okay, cool. Yep. Well, let's control for two parents being in the household. And so this is from 2013. Um, in a two-parent black household, the median net wealth in this country is $16,000. In a single-parent white household, the median net wealth is basically double of $35,800. And we'll talk a little bit about how we got here. But literally, even if you were to control for marriage or partnership status in black two-parent households, the median net wealth is still half of that of a white household which is in single, uh, which is single parent. Let's talk about college graduation, right? People get really upset about affirmative action programs. So this study from Demo says white people with less education hold more wealth. So the median wealth return on college graduation for white families, according to the study, is $55,869. It's a median uh, wealth return for college graduation. For black families, it's 4,800. Remember the white families was 55,800. Black families was 4,800. Latino families was 4,100. Um, let's talk about median net wealth based on education, right? Well, people aren't getting good education. So let's control for that. Black people with at least some college have a median net wealth of $11,000, whereas white people with less in high school have a median net wealth of about $18,000. Um, and I could go through these statistics for days. We could talk about education. We could talk about healthcare. We could talk about criminal justice. But the point is, is that this country has historically invested in white communities. Yep. The creation of the Federal Housing Authority, in which $120 billion worth of home loans were subsidized for white families between uh, 1934 and 1962. The GI Bill, the Dawes Land Allotment, I mean, um, the Homestead Act, the list goes on. And so 
we've seen time and time again, this country invests in the development of wealth for white people and white families, and then divest from the development of wealth for families of color. Um, and when you say legal, the last thing I'll say on this, like people say, well, it was made illegal. Well, I mean, the 14th Amendment was passed <laughs> a long time before the Civil Rights Act. And the 14th Amendment yeah, says yeah. that everyone receives equal protection under the law. And so if policy was the be all end all of ensuring that racism didn't exist, are people suggesting that when the 14th Amendment was uh, ratified, that, that there was no racism in this country? Mm. Why would we need a law in 1965 to say that everyone has to be treated equally? And then why would we need more laws again in 1968 to legalize the right to vote? And then why do we need more laws in 1968 to, to make housing discrimination illegal? Because wasn't that covered in the 1965 policy? Oh, why? Because people are, sti people are still engaging in these practices at a systemic level across institutions. And that's what matters, right? And when you talk about legal, that means that in order for someone to address an incident of racism, if it occurs, they have to go through the existing legal system. Mm -hmm. Well, you just said you read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. When in this country, based on any type of um, access or, or proximity to the legal system, have people of color, particularly black bodies, received a fair shake under that structure? Um, and so at the end of the day, we still would have to have a system where the court structure was fair or at least equitable, right? Um, and that has never existed in the United States. So, you know, it's, it's a really easy question to answer, but honestly, I think it's a waste of time. I think that anybody with two eyes can see the disparities that exist in this country and the ways in which our history and our current policy has created and maintained those disparities. Um, I just think that people are interested in maintaining their comfort and their privilege. And so usually those folks I just ignore and focus on the people who want to move us forward, um, but don't know how. Yeah, I think you're 110% correct. This is willful ignorance at the end of the day, right? One of the, one of the, I have tried, um, I like a good conversation. I like a good spar, sparring session. And so with some of these people, I have engaged them, you know, and we've had conversations, but you, they usually don't last long because one of the first questions, and please tell me if this is not an appropriate question for, you know, I'm a son of an immigrant. I'm not a white person, but I'm also not, you know, a, I'm also not a black person. So, but the question I've been posing to them is answer this question for me, either systemic racism is real or you believe that black people are more violent lazier and more evil than white people because you're throwing statistics about black on black crime and how many of how many black men are in prison and fatherless households and yeah all the income stuff you just talked about and they attribute and and they and they but at the same time they're saying well systemic racism isn't real and so the question i have for them and they usually hem and haw around it but i think that's a real question to ask either it's well, a real thing. thing go ahead no, and I think that the bigger question is we know that it's a real thing. So we like to even debate whether it's a real thing or not is is to give way to an ideology that has been long since like, you know, people don't I mean, people don't really like debate if outer space exists. Like people don't really debate if like there's air. Like people do debate on like a lot of silly things. Obviously there's some people who are like, no, the earth is flat and they believe that. Um, but for the vast majority of people we're like, well, yeah, there may be this fringe element that believes the earth is flat, but like, no, the earth is round and it's like been proven in science. Like everyone in science agrees and everyone in policy agrees and like everyone 
um, you know, who studies this particular field agrees. And racism is one of those things where like, there's not a single scholar in this country who studies race and the impacts of, of the creation of race that, that says racism isn't real. So I, we should not give any credence to that ideology. But I think, so the bigger question for those folks really is, why would you rather believe? <laughs> you have every black person, you know, minus, you know, a handful, saying they experience systemic racism. You have the data, you have the statistics, you have this country's historic policy. I mean, you have everything in front of you. Um, you you <laughs> know that our neighborhoods were built based on these systems and structures. You know that our banking systems were built based on systems and structures. You know the country's wealth was based on the exploitation of the very people that you're talking about. You know that even when slavery ended in 1865, convict leasing and other forms of enslavement continued well into towards World War Four, World War Two. You know that um, black people have been medically experimented on. Like you know, all these things have happened. So um, why would you rather believe that black people are more X or more Y or more whatever? And even that argument doesn't hold up because less than 1% of black people in a given year will commit a violent crime. Yes, there are concentrated pockets of crime that exist in urban areas and that exists amongst white people in urban areas and black people in our urban areas. But if we really want to talk about violence at a global level, um, black people are not the ones committing massive violence at a global level. So um, even that stereotype does not hold true if we were to really analyze like, well, where is most of the violence coming from? Well, and, um, and maybe you know, we and, should think about that. Yeah, and you know, you know this, and I know this, and Michelle Alexander knows this, that you can't, you can't even trust the statistics and numbers. You can't just look at the number of, you know, black men in prison for X, Y, and Z crimes because they're not accurate. If you over police, exactly. if you over police black neighborhoods, you're going to, if you're looking for crime, you're going to find something. You're going to find some dude innocently sitting on his porch smoking weed, and you're going to, you're going to find crime. And that's not a crime. That shouldn't be a crime. But you're going to find that, right? All the while you go down to, you know, some, some white suburb after a football game, and you're going to see a whole house full of young people, you know, uh, consuming all sorts of drugs and, and, and engaging in all sorts of crimes. But because that neighborhood is not being policed, they're not going to get caught, right? So Michelle Alexander points out in the New Jim Crow that white, like young white people uh, are much more criminal than young black people. They are way, they're committing way more crimes, but they're not getting caught. They're not getting, because they're not, because they're, because cops are not looking for crime in those neighborhoods, in those homes. So they get off scot-free. Meanwhile, you know, black neighborhoods are being policed five, six, 10 times as, as much and as often as white neighborhoods. Again, if you're looking for a crime, if you're looking for something wrong, you're going to find it. Right. And so yeah, and I think numbers aren't accurate because what you see in prison doesn't reflect the actual crimes that are being committed that white people never get caught for. Yeah, I mean, and that's been proven time and time again through data as well. And I think that stop and frisk is actually an interesting kind of pushback on that too, because we, I mean, we see, we saw during stop and frisk that they were looking for crime. I mean, literally sometimes stopping people on a daily basis. I mean, you have people who are being stopped hundreds of times a year um, by police. I mean, you're talking about just massive surveillance of black neighborhoods. And what they found, one, was that like, I, I mean, I don't know, I don't have the exact numbers, so I don't want to quote one, but I mean, I, I mean, I, I know it's in the 90s, like 
a, a high, 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 high percentage of black people who had no contraband, who had no weapons, who, you know, were doing obviously nothing wrong. Um, and, the, and that the percentage of white people that they did search and the percentage of white people they found contraband on was significantly higher. And so I think at the end of the day, um, once again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where this isn't a really dynamic of people genuinely not knowing that racism exists. This is a dynamic of people being willfully apathetic in the face of systemic racism. And in order to protect the ideology that they have earned every all of the privileged status that they have, they would rather believe that somebody else was so much less than them than to look at themselves and analyze how this country is giving them a leg up. And so for folks who themselves is their main goal or priority or concern, the reason why I don't spend a lot of time investing in those people is because they're not going to be the people who are going to help us move a movement. Because those people understand that white supremacy has a net negative impact on all of us as a mm. collective. Yeah. And the comforts that white people receive because of white privilege are not scarce. Those comforts can be extended to people of color without white people losing anything. And I think that the fear is that, you know, this new world means that white people are going to, everything that they've worked for is going to be taken from them. And I think that scarcity mindset is, you know, one of the things that causes people, particularly people who are struggling to fight uh, amongst themselves, instead of looking at the systems and structures that exist in our country to maintain and protect the most powerful. I mean, what, Jeff Bezos made $13 billion the other day, like in a day. Yeah, Meanwhile, the country, it, people aren't knowing where they're going to feed their family. Um, you know, people aren't knowing how they're going to pay their mortgage or their rent. Like, this is a time where millions of people are out of work, and yet billionaires are somehow getting more wealthy in this country. And yet, here we are fighting against each other on the ground um, because one group doesn't want another group have the same access and rights and freedoms as them and then potentially join forces to address the real problem at hand which is the way that capitalism has been built to ensure that a very 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 small inconsequential amount of people win like less than one percent and everybody else in the system and structure is the fuel right like i mean to me that seems like an issue that we will never be able to address because white supremacy continues to divide us across multiple in intersections of identity um and you know that's exactly what it was designed to do let's talk about things that are happening currently um the last few months both i, I want to hear your thoughts on how this pandemic is disproportionately affecting people of color i also want to talk about uh these tragic losses that we've seen at the hands of uh white supremacists and cops these last few months before i do that though how are you doing like during this season, like not work wise, all of that, but like, how are you processing through all of this, taking care of yourself, making sure that this uh, season of life doesn't uh, kick your ass too hard? Yeah, um, that's a, a really good question. And it's a question that I get a lot. And you would think based on the number of times I'm asked that I would have a better answer for it. Um, you know, I'm treading water. I think that everybody who is um, both, I think being black is hard enough right now. I mean, you, know, you have to kind of think about the sequencing of this. And I think that there's this major lack of humanity in the people 
who are shouting all lives matter or the people who are actively using their platform or their voice to detract from this movement, because you really have to think about the context that we're existing in. Um, we are a people in which everything horrible, like the worst thing you could ever in your imagination imagine. Matter of fact, the walls of our imagination stop at the things that have happened to black people in this country. Mm. You can't imagine, like, like our imagine can, imagination can only stretch only as far as like something that we've seen in real life that maybe we can imagine to be, you know, worse than what it is. And like anything you could imagine from genocide to enslavement, to rape, to um, torture, to medical experimentation, to chemical experimentation, to mass incarceration, to, um, you know, war on drugs, um, and, you know, the criminalization of addiction, um, to being now cut out of the weed industry, I mean, to having movement leaders assassinated, um, both by vigilantes and by the federal government, um, to have communities burned and destroyed, to have churches burned and destroyed. You know, I got a reminder on Facebook from like four years ago where I put on Facebook, like, hey, did anyone, uh, did we ever find out who's burning all those churches? Do you remember when all the churches came oh, yeah. burned like four years ago after, um, I want to, I can't remember um, which incident, it was after another incident of violence against people of color or black bodies. Um, and that was a Facebook post about the fact that like people had stopped talking about it. Well, here we are four years later and do we know who burned those churches? And, and meanwhile, right now what's happening is black people are all of a sudden being found hung all over the country and yep. every single one of them overnight is being ruled as a suicide. So to, 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 to kind of, you know, wrap up this point, we as a people have seen and experienced everything imaginable. When people say things like, well, you know, this is America, that would never happen here. <laughs> it's like, we can't have the assurance that, anything won't ever happen here because we as a people have endured everything and anyone who is black who's lived or died in this country has lived through a moment like this mm. i was after john lewis died i was watching um eyes on the prize because i wanted to see some clips of him when he was young and it was talking about the time that he marched across edmund pettus bridge and they had been asking president johnson to give them federal protection to guard some of the migrant march, which was a march in response to a police murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson in 1965. So like put that in perspective. Yeah. Um, and you know, the federal government didn't agree to protect them even after bloody Sunday, when John Lewis was beaten and all the protests were beaten, you know, a lot of people from all over the country, notably white people from the North came down. James Reeb, who was a pastor in Boston, um, was murdered by some local white people in Alabama. And when that white man was killed, um, Johnson gave a speech to the nation and he promised protection for the marchers. But at the end of the speech, he said, we shall overcome. In the very next clip of eyes on the prize was the mayor of Selma at the time, um, Smitherman. I can't remember his first name. And he talked about how much of a dig that felt to white Southerners, himself included, when the president said, we shall overcome. Mm. That, like, that it like, it, that it threw them for a loop, that it was like, that it was, I mean, he's, his words were that it felt like a dagger in the heart. And in that moment, I recognized like it was controversial in the 1960s to say we shall overcome because that was the slogan of the movement at the time. Mm. Just like it's controversial to say Black Lives Matter today, yep. Yep. right? And it's like, we're living in these same cycles. And so, you know, our goal, people have had 400 years to figure out what side they're on. 
our goal right now isn't so like we should educate ourselves in the movement but our goal right now i don't think is to convert people to join our movement if people have not joined our movement in this amount of time then like we just have to go with who we have and accomplish what we can um while continuing to build you know the strength of the collective that we have hoping that people will change their hearts and minds along the way but um we can spend all of our time arguing down bigots um but at the end of the day like they will always exist and matter of fact um you know we can change these systems and structures without white people individually changing their hearts and minds i always say this like you don't this work doesn't actually require every white person to be an anti-racist um, but we need to change systems and structures and policies and, you know, repair the harm that those policies have done historically so that this is no longer a structural dynamic, um, which holds people back across multiple intersections of identity in this country. This, uh, this COVID-19 global pandemic has affected so many Americans, you know, despite skin color and race background, all of that but it has disproportionately affected people of color in a lot of ways. But I want to, I want to hit on the uh, uh, business owners. Uh, they're, they're projecting that 50% of black owned businesses will shut their doors forever as a result of this pandemic. Uh, already 450,000 black owned businesses. And that's not counting all people of color. There's also, it's already, it's hit the Latino community. It's, it's, uh, it's gone all over the place, but just in the black community, 450,000 businesses so far have closed their doors for good forever. They won't be reopened. I know we've, we've probably already, we have already touched on why, why that's happening, but why is that happening? Like, why is that happening in 2020? And we've seen, we've seen these, we've seen these, uh, you can call them anecdotes, but I think it's more than an anecdote. I think it's, it's, it's representative of, things that are happening across the board. We've seen uh, white people that have applied for PPP loans for their yoga studio or otherwise get approved right away. I mean, I'm talking in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And then you've seen tons and tons of black people try to get the same loans that are promised equally to all Americans, should there be a need, and they're not getting them. They're being denied one time, two times, three times. They're trying to get these loans and they're not getting them. Meanwhile, you've got these humongous uh, you know, very profitable businesses like Shake Shack and Walmart and that stupid steakhouse, like they, they're getting millions of dollars. Um, these are businesses that are wildly profitable. They don't need the money and they're getting them. And then there's small business owners that are not getting it. So we're in this pandemic. It's not letting up yet. School's not starting for most of America here in the next week or two. Well, it's starting, but virtually what's going on? Like why are black people and people of color disproportionately being affected by in 2020, when there isn't systemic racism, as they claim, why is that happening still? Yeah, I mean, but that's, I mean, that's what this system does. And, you know, um, hearing you read those statistics is like a punch in the stomach, because this has been the experience of being Black in America, you know, since we were stolen um, and brought here as mm -hmm. a labor force that no matter how hard you work, no matter how many obstacles or hurdles you climb to climb the ladder of success in a place that fundamentally um, at every turn tries to limit your ability or your ceiling um, to navigate success, whether that be in the education system, obviously you mentioned the system of banking, mm. um, you know, when you have to deal with the business, you also have to interface with the local and national government. 
um, you know, and so we see systemic racism existing in all those structures. So you're, it's, it's multiplicative is I guess what I'm trying to say. Like, it's not just the Adamic, you're like, oh yeah, I didn't get the PPP loan, but on top of not getting the PPP loan, um, you know, the insurance company is charging you higher rates. And then on top of the insurance company charging higher rates, you know, the um, government's not giving you the permit that you apply for at the same time that they gave the permit to another business, right? Like it's, it's, it's the compounding nature of all of that, um, you know, that I think is, is such a damning uh, kind of reality to navigate. And so, you know, that's what the system does. I mean, in every era in the life of the United States, black people have made significant um, strides. And then, you know, the goalposts have been moved. And then they make significant strides. And then the goalposts have moved. And they make significant strides. And the goalposts have moved. And every war, every natural disaster, every economic collapse, every, anytime something bad happens to the U.S., that bad thing is the, the brunt of it is shouldered by the Black community. Well, that's what we were brought here for in the first place. Like, we are the buffer in capitalism. Like, we are the cog that makes this structure work. Like, we are the community of people that will, we're the shock absorption of the United States. And so, you know, I mean, that's predictable. And then the thing about this is what happens next is as people are given, as you mentioned, the aid that comes to dig us out of this moment, mm -hmm. we also don't get that. Mm -hmm. So the disaster hits us harder. And then the stuff that's given to support people, we either systematically don't get it at all, or we get it at a much lower rate. And so then on both sides of this, like often, once again, it's about advantaging. White folks out, come out of these disasters in many cases better, right? Or like at least in the middle to upper class, you know, class rank. Obviously, like classism, you know, I'm sure, you know, poor white folks are not navigating those same levels of, of advantage. But like in mass, a lot of times, right? Like it's easier to fall on your feet. When the Great Depression hit and the New Deal policies were passed, well, that built the white middle class for this country. That allowed, you know. Irish and Italian and German and Polish immigrants who had faced dramatic discrimination in this country that allowed them to assimilate into whiteness and purchase homes and use those homes to send their kids to college or fighting the war and then access the GI Bill or, you know, the Social Security Act, which initially cut us out or the labor unions, which initially cut black and brown bodies out. So it's like, this is what, in my opinion, like, this is why we are still here, right? And it's like, this country needs to determine whether or not it will fully enfranchise us, um, but to keep us in this place of the perpetual um, shock absorption of the United States, um, the buffer of the United States, the mules of the United States, the, the cogs that keep this thing running. Like that's, that's not an existence that anybody is, is going to stay in permanently. And I think the uprising we see happening across the country is a piece of that, but it's just a piece of it. And I think that at some point, you know, white Americans are going to wake up and say like, you know, we have to do something like this is our responsibility to do something about these structures because it's not just this generation. Every black person living in this country has had to live through a civil rights movement. So what is the collective trauma and stress that exists in our community because we are perpetually um, confined to systems and structures of inequality? Who can, who can survive like that um, for an unlimited period of time? It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's incredibly heartbreaking. And alongside this, uh, you know, tragic pandemic that isn't letting up and we don't really know what's ahead, right? And we're not getting a ton of help from, uh, you know, the powers that be. 
we've also, alongside this pandemic, we've got several instances of police brutality and white supremacist, white supremacy brutality that have caused this uh, upheaval, uh, rightfully so, upheaval in this country. We have, you know, for, for a few weeks there, tons, you know, dozens of major cities in America had, you know, marches and you had these big uprisings of people saying, it's, it, we're done, we're finished, no more, right? And a lot of those have died down, but you still have some, several key cities that are really still going, going hard. You have the federal, federal agents that have, you know, uh, landed upon Portland and Seattle and other places to, you know, sort of try to quell the, the upheaval that is happening right now. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting to point out that what's happening right now, if you go back to, if you go back to the March on Washington, uh, where, you know, John Lewis at 23, uh, spoke alongside Dr. King, you know, it was mostly, you had white people show up, but it was mostly, it was like 99 point whatever percent black people that showed up. Right. There weren't white people really getting involved. And now it's different. Now it's different. You have a city that like Portland, that has an incredibly racist past, that is mostly white people showing up now. Moms, you got the wall of moms. You have all these white moms showing up to say, we're fucking done. Like, it's over. We're not going to stand for it anymore. And they're even going up. I mean, you got these moms getting tear gassed. You see the mayor of Portland getting tear gassed, right? Saying, we're done. Like, we, something's got to change. Do you, do, you see, do you see what's happening right now as uh, another civil rights movement? as it were, is this, is this another civil rights movement? Could you, could you classify it as that? If not, what, what do you think is happening right now? I don't want it to die down. It has died down somewhat, but it's still going strong in certain areas. Like, is this a movement that is going to change the trajectory uh, that America has been on? Yeah. I mean, one, I don't, I don't think the civil rights movement ever stopped. You know, I mm, think sure. that, um, Good point. you know, we um, have highlighted, some activists and the hot other activists we've seen activists be you know falsely imprisoned we've seen activists be murdered um i think that if anything you know in the 70s 80s 90s if we were to say or even like the early 2000s um if we were to say that like there was no i can't uh brother i can't hear you give, give me a second Hello? sorry no, no, now you're back. You now? Yeah, for, for like right. 10 seconds, I couldn't, uh, I saw your lips moving, Sorry, but I can hear yeah. you. No, you're good. Keep going. Yeah, so basically what I was saying was just to like, yeah, if anything, we would have to attribute that to like the government skill in, um, you know, decapitating black descent, whether that be through COINTELPRO, um, the false imprisonment of black and brown leaders or the incarceration of black and brown leaders. Um, you know, not that black communities um or communities of color haven't always been engaged in these things i mean i can go through every decade every single decade black and brown folks have been fighting for many of the same things we're fighting for now it's just about whether or not the mainstream media decides to tell the story at all and when they do tell the story how they tell it you know i think what's happening in portland is great um, i think it's awesome to see the sustained movement there and i think you know the movement has been going on now for i don't know how many days 60 days 70 days like i don't like some great number of days and you know that keeps being reported and that's amazing and i and i and i'm proud of that and it's great to see it um but the migrant bus boycott was 382 days mm -hmm. you know um the movement that happened in ferguson not too many not too many years ago was over 400 days mm. you know and so like in those and both of those movements um 
included black moms, you know, who said enough, like we're sick of this, like we're not gonna, we're not doing this anymore. Um, and black moms have been on the front lines of these these movements since, you know, um, 1619, you know? Um, yeah. And so I think, yeah, are we seeing another civil rights movement? Sure. I mean, I think that we, we are always in one. I think that this one is getting mainstream attention. Um, will this movement lead to major change? Well, that's to be seen. And if the movement does lead to major change, will our country be prepared for the backlash that has always come every time after there's been a major change? You talk about slavery being abolished. Well, then Jim Crow, Black Codes, convict leasing, the founding of the Ku Klux Klan, the erection of um, the Confederate monuments that people are hoping to protect all over the country, not realizing that they were erected after the Civil War as a means to terrorize Black communities by saying, hey, just because we lost the war doesn't mean that we're going to stop terrorizing you. You know, we talk about after Dr. King's death and the systematic dismantling of the Black Panther Party through COINTELPRO and the dismantling of the um, Black Power Movement um, and then the criminalization of illness um, through the war on drugs and the war on crime that happened before that with Nixon, where John Ehrlichman, one of his top advisors, said that the war on crime was targeted directly at black communities as a result of the Southern strategy. So it's like, I mean, it's, it's, it's not just about making change. Like I'm excited. I, I do believe that this moment can make significant change, but are we also historically savvy enough to know that after we do, if we win, there will be backlash. And so we have to also be prepared for that. And so it's a, it's a complicated proposition. Yeah, it is complicated. You're, you're very right because, uh, changes could be made at uh, a, a policy systemic level, as it were, the the president and, you know, Congress and the House, like they could all say X, Y, and Z, we're going to make these changes. But a- as we've seen the, the uh, president Trump and the kind of racism and xenophobia and bigotry that we've seen from directly from him and also many, you know, many of his policies and the people that he surrounded himself with the Stephen Millers and such, like, they've they're just a symptom of the problem right if they change if we get rid of if we get rid of trump and miller and all these people we've are we've still seen that tens of millions of americans agree with him they fundamentally agree with uh keeping america white equals keeping america great like they fundamentally agree with so much of what's happening so you know we could not hear from trump tomorrow for the rest of time and we and, and we still got a problem. So you're right in that you know things could change. This could result in huge changes, whether at a at a policy level, at a systemic level. Hopefully, like please God. But it doesn't mean that the tens of millions of Americans, from kids all the way to you know old people. There was a there was a video that somebody caught yesterday of an old couple sitting in a car, and he said. He said something to the effect of, I wish, like, I, I wish I could st- string you up. I wish I could hang yeah, you. Yeah, I saw, I yeah, saw right? the video. So, yeah. so, so 50, there are, 50 years ago, I would have fifty yes. out of that car and hung. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but exactly. So 50 years ago, I would have yeah. done that. He said, he's, he's saying, yeah. I hate, I hate your fucking guts right now. You're not worthy of living. I just can't do it because the law says I can't. Right. That's what he was saying. And so I think it's and in the law said he couldn't then too. <laughs> True. They just weren't enforcing the law. Yeah. They weren't enforcing it. They weren't enforcing yeah. it. And yeah. and and they might not be enforcing yeah, no, it now because we've got these right. we've got like these bl- 
We got these black bodies that are showing up right all over and they're being way too quickly ruled as suicides, right? So they're not enforcing it now. There have not been huge investigations launched into these uh, these actual black lynchings uh, that that are that are too, it's too coincidental to be multiple suicides happening within literally driving distance of each other, uh, you know, within within the span of a few days. So you're right. It's not being enforced now uh, either. So let, let's talk about let's talk, you know, the the demographic of the let's give a damn listeners. There are people of color and there are kind of a wide variety of ages, ages. but the, the majority of people listening are white people in the millennial age age range that want to be allies. They want to be anti-racists and that's why they're here. They're, they're part of the let's give a damn family because they want to give a damn uh, about these things that we're talking about. Let's talk to the, uh, the white people that are listening that want to be good allies. Let's talk about what it takes and what it means to be good allies because we have so much going on right now. We have people that are sharing a ton of stuff on Instagram and they see that as being an ally. We see so many people that are diving into the books, into the readings and watching, you know, watching uh, 13 yeah. on Netflix. They're they're watching when they see us on Netflix and they're 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 trying to do the homework right now. And then with the very little knowledge they have, they're beginning to speak up, right? And some of the things they're going to say as a result are going to be spot on. And some are going to be, well, that I don't, I think you, I think you got the wrong thing out of that, or you need to polish okay. that up a little bit. So talk about what it takes, what it means to be a good ally right now in this, uh, these very contentious times, uh, this, this, this movement that's happening right now. Yeah, um, my business partner, uh, well, the director of impact at Overcoming Racism, uh, Med, gave an analogy the other day that I think answers his question really well on a call that we were on with the school uh, district. And he said, you know, like, you can read a book about parenting. <laughs> you can, you know, buy all the, you know, buy every, all the resources you need. You have a great baby shower. You, you're surrounded by a community of people who support the fact that you're about to become this new parent. And when your kids are born, there's not a single person alive who's ever um, gotten it right perfectly, right? Like there's no one who has um, been prepared <laughs> to be a parent because you can only, you can prepare, Yeah. but you know, you're, it's, you're, you're gonna have to learn on the job and every kid is different. Um, and you know, there's no one who would ever say like, I, if you desire to have kids, like I'm going to wait to have kids until I'm 100% sure that I will never make a mistake. And I think a lot of times white people who desire to be allies, um, it's a similar structure in that like, yeah, I mean, reading books is really good. Reading podcasts, I mean, listening to podcasts is really good. Um, watching documentaries is really good. Engaging in conversations with family members and friends. All these things are really good. But if you are waiting to um, have everything figured out, before you step out there and attend your first protest or before you call a political leader or before you figure out which organizations to volunteer with or donate, you know, to, or, or whatever your first intersection into making structural change, right, is, um, then you'll never do it. And I think that a lot of times um, some of our white allies, they lose steam and they lose stamina because, yeah, I mean, it's different. I mean, we're asking you at a baseline level, at the, at the lowest level, of what we're asking you is to think about the fact that you're white often. <laughs> and like, I know from the fact that I have privilege as a man and as a cisgender person who's a heterosexual person, that like, you know, I can 
go days, weeks, months, years, a lifetime if I choose to, and never think about the fact that I'm heterosexual. Like it's not something that's going to impact the way that I live, choose to live my life if I'm not cognizant of it. Think about the fact that I'm cisgender and all the privileges that come along with that, right? And so it's like, at the baseline, you have to build the stamina to just think about the fact that you are white Mm. and to think about it on a daily basis. The same way I think about the fact that I am black on a daily basis, not by choice, but because as a means of survival in these structures, I have to know what that means to the person who's across from me, um, especially as I navigate systems of power. And so, you know, I think people have to be prepared to make mistakes. I think people have to be prepared to receive rebuke. I think people have to be prepared to um, do something that furthers racism (laughs) um, before you figure it out to do things that are reducing it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think all of those things are going to happen. I think what people of color need more than anything is longevity and staying power and commitment. Because when you join the work, if you're being effective and you start lightening the load, and then we build capacity about what we can do to further this movement. And then you remove yourself from the work. But now we are carrying more weight because we're carrying the weight that you brought along with you that we're not going to sacrifice or, or lose from the movement or the momentum rather. And we're carrying the momentum of what we were already carrying. And I think that a lot of times white people think that this is some like, you know, zero sum game where um, if I take a break or if I you know step away or if I just like not think about this for a period of time, like that has no net impact on the movement but understand that all while you are resting there are people of color who are still holding up that burden right like there is never a time where the burden is just like laid down and everyone is chilling like you can believe that when you are tired the people of color who've been carrying this burden for their entire life are tired too they don't have the privilege to put it down and if they can put it down they may be able to put it down for a few hours they may put it down for a day but then they're reminded that it's a pandemic. And then they're reminded that the pandemic is killing us disproportionately. So even if you're not paying attention to what's happening in our country based on social unrest around changing social systems and structures of racism, there's this whole other thing that still is disproportionately impacting us if we're Black in terms of the funerals that we've attended, the family members that we've buried, the friends that we've buried, the friends, friends who are grieving, the people who are sick in our communities but can't receive ex- access to equitable health care, the people in our communities who are unemployed, the people in our communities who had to work through the pandemic as essential workers because four out of five Black um, folks couldn't work from home, so literally kept the com- country running. And then a few weeks later, when everyone's like, oh, praise the essential workers, thank God for essential workers. Meanwhile, we know this um, virus is ravaging Black America. Yep, a few yep. weeks later, a man's neck is knelt upon, and then you know, many, not all white Americans, <laughs> won't even entertain the conversation of more access to rights and freedoms and equality for the very same people that were keeping them alive a few weeks earlier. And, and by virtue of that, their entire lives. It's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty stressful uh, reality to, to think about. Man, there's so many different directions we could go here. I'm trying to, um, trying to stay focused because yeah, there's, there's so much you just said that, you know, impacted me deeply and that I'm hoping that people will, uh, listening, will do so humbly. We'll do so humbly because I know that at multiple points during this conversation, uh, little wall, maybe maybe not huge walls, maybe not really thick walls, but walls of defense are coming up saying like, well, that's not me. That's not how I think. That's not how I live. You know, I've seen, uh, you know, I, I've, I've had, I've, I've heard some 
passing comments as I've had conversations these last few months from, you know, some people out there that are trying to do the good work of becoming an anti-racist. They're trying to do that work. They're trying to dig in, read, you know, read the books, listen to the talks, watch the documentaries. They're trying to do it all. And they will say in, in a moment of frustration, man, this is tiring. This is a lot. And I'm like, well, no shit. Like, no shit. Try being black and living it. And I don't know what that experience is like. I'm not trying to, to, to say that I do. But I understand it enough to not even, not even want to complain about the work that's being done right now. Because it is, it is tiring. It is tiring. It is a lot of work. I mean, and, 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 and along with that, I feel like some people are, let's talk about this for a second. Do you feel, in the work that you've done these last couple of months, do you see white people sort of using this anti-racist training that they're putting themselves through as more of a box to check off versus uh, this being like, no, this is not, this is not three months, then you get a certificate. This is a lifelong endeavor. This is something that you should continue to do because racism well, Cornell, is going to... Cornell University is selling certificates. So, <laughs> Are they really? Yeah. Cornell has a two-week diversity and inclusion course. It's like $3,600. And it's like 10 hours over the course of the two weeks, like 10 hours total. And you get a certificate after two weeks that says you're like certified in diversity and inclusion. So I think that there are people, and I know they were doing that before this, but there, there are certainly some people who are capitalizing on this moment, but no, you're right. Um, you know, I, here's the here's the thing. I I think that like honestly, if there's anyone who understands the humanity of I'm tired, it is people of color. And I think honestly, like for as much um, as walls of defense are probably going up, you know, most people of color are actually actually hold a pretty low threshold of what we expect from white people, right? In terms of movement building. And so you can be a white person and like respond to a Facebook comment and like tell a white friend off because they posted something racist and you'll have like four comments of black women like bigging you up in the comments or, you know, different people, you know, black folks in a, in a lot of my interest intentions, like a white person will like participate once and the black people all swarm them. And I'm actually trying to like get them to stop doing it. like, no, like let them, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're okay. Like let them do their thing. But I think, you know, like people of color are all, are always, even in our exposure to racism, extremely gracious people. So like the times in which you endure some pushback or someone says something that's pointed to you, those are the things that are, I think are the greatest gift. And a lot of times people of color reserve that for a person that they have some modicum of respect for because I wouldn't have wasted my time correcting or critiquing someone who I thought was a bigot, right? And so, you know, I think that that hurts people's feelings. And, and sometimes people say like, oh, I'm trying my hardest. And this person just kind of called me out or whatever. And maybe I shouldn't do this. And it's like, well, the only way you're going to get better is if somebody shows you when you make a mistake. And that person didn't have to stop to tell you that. So I think sometimes people interpret like black rebuke as like, angry, like through the lens of all those same racist stereotypes, that, like makes white people afraid of black people sure. and then it, and then it and that you received it that way that's not the spirit in which it was given and sometimes it is the spirit in which it was given and in the day like as you said um that's just kind of the cost that you may have to pay to you know engage in this work so you know I, I i think that if a white person's tired like we understand that we're all very tired the question is like are you using rest as a strategy 
or so you can, you know, come back, you know, you take a couple of days off and you strategize and you come back to do the next thing with more clarity or, or you've learned a little bit more or whatever, or are you just being apathetic, right? And there's a difference between ignorance and apathy. And I think at this point in the United States, there are far fewer white people who can claim ignorance. And so I just need white people to be, to identify who they are and where they are and be comfortable with that. If you're apathetic, then that is what it is. Um, but for the folks who are like truly doing this from an altruistic reason and who are doing this honestly for themselves and not like to save anybody else, those people will have staying power. Um, and, you know, we'll, you know, yeah, we'll support each other along the way. What do you, what do you say to people out there that haven't done much work besides, uh, you know, retweeting and sharing different things, right? That is like super baseline, but they feel like that is something. They feel like that's something and that they're, they're doing their part. They haven't, you know, done the hard work of picking up, you know, uh, you know, white fragility or how to not to be an, or how to be an anti-racist or the new Jim Crow or tons of these other resources. They haven't picked them up. They're not reading my Angelou. They're not reading, you know, John Lewis. They're not reading James Baldwin. They're not doing any of that work, but they are, you know, you know, sharing a bunch of stuff in their stories. Like, what do you say to them about, cause I, cause at, at the same time, I don't want to discount that and say that's nothing because a lot of them are in the face of scrutiny by relatives and brothers, you know, and friends, they're posting stuff that is causing people close to them to block them and to get super pissed off at them. So I'm, I don't want to say that's nothing, but what do you, what would you, what would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are different roles in a movement. You know, I think that, like, not everybody is a person who marched, you know, like, everyone always says, like, basically the joke is, like, I marched with Dr. King. It's like, yeah, no, you didn't. Like, you know, it's only but so many people can march at a given sure, place at right. a given time. So I think it's about finding a niche in the movement that works for you. And I think that posting and reposting is a part of that. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, that in isolation of, like, any other skill or talent that you have, I think it's about... I think it's about assessing like, what are your gifts? What are your skills? What are your talents? What do you have to give? Um, Brittany Patton uses this term, uh, spend your privilege. You know, in what areas can, can you spend your privilege and make the most impact? I think that's where white people should exist. I mean, there are some white people who are like great social media influencers or like they know the da -da -da, video editors. Like then yeah, social media for, for you can be a tool that you use to like maybe help build a, uh, you know, person of color's brand or help them attract more followers or pass the mic, like whatever the case may be. Um, but I, I think my overall statement to any and every white person who is either sitting on the sidelines or not maxim, you know, working towards maximizing their impact to the movement is like, what are you waiting on? Um, you know, like this is the time. Uh, I remember in school, whenever we would learn about the civil rights movement, like my white friends would always turn around and like, give me that awkward look and you know would be like uh, i would have drank from the colored water fountain and i would have marched with you and i would have sat in and i would have done whatever you know like white people when they put themselves in history always see themselves as like the hero yep. right and not yep. the villain like yep. i would have marched with king i would have gotten beaten i would have done this and that and it's like well whatever you're doing right now is exactly what you would have been doing then so if Twitter or Facebook or Instagram today is kind of like, you know, reading the newspaper and maybe talking yeah, to sitting your around friends the barbershop. Exactly. Sitting around, yes, yeah, in the barbershop. Then, like, does that not make an impact? No, of course not. Like, it's good that you're in the barbershop talking and disrupting that. Like, that's great. But at the same time, like, there are people who are doing more than that um, and they need you. 
um, and that the more people who carry the burden, then um, the lighter the load is. And I think that that's what people lose. They're like, oh, I don't want to go out and, and, and experience the police doing that stuff. Well, if it was 20,000 people out there, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, do the police have the same capacity to 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 brutalize them and to, you know, abuse their constitutional rights? Well, of course not, right? Um, if we are voting in mass on these issues, will politicians see this at like this as a as a political battleground to stand upon? Like there are things that we can do as a collective that moves this work further and faster and with less bloodshed. But the reason why this is these movements have been built upon like the brutalization of the black body is because like we've been left to fend for ourselves in systems and structures that care about us least. Like you just said, the wall of moms, like people are talking about moms in protest because white moms are doing it. That is huge. That is privilege because black moms have been doing it forever, literally so right. forever. You're and so it right. never even registered on anyone's radar. So yeah, so you know, we, you all can do things and bring attention that we just can't, um, you know, just by showing up. And so what are you waiting for? Yeah, um, because that's, we don't have, yeah. That's both a tragic, no, no, you're good. That's both a tragic and a beautiful thing, right? That, that moms, white moms can show up and get noticed when black moms have been doing it for forever. That's, that's both beautiful and tragic because we need white people to stand up because they do get noticed when white people do stuff. When Portland is, you know, when these, when these, uh, this uprising happening in Portland right now is mostly white people. I think that's partially why it's getting the attention that it's getting, uh, both, both positive attention and negative attention. It's because it's 90% white people out there doing that. And so it's, it's both an indictment on the media and on how things are in society, but also like keep doing that because when you do something, white people, it gets attention and you get a platform, you get a chance at the microphone. So keep doing it, but also realize that you're in a place of privilege to be able to do something that people have been doing for deck, well, centuries, and they never got noticed and you're getting noticed. So just realize, kind of sit in that, sit in that reality that this is a hugely privileged thing that you get to do, that you can stand out in Portland. And yes, you might get tear gas, you might get hit with a pepper bullet, but you're not going to get shot. They wouldn't, they're not, they're not going to do that. The, the police aren't that stupid to shoot a bunch of white people at a protest, right? Um, and so you have that privilege of like being able to act out and being able to act up and up and rise up and you're still safe. You're still gonna be safe, right? For the most part, you know? So that is a that is a place of, you know, we're talking about social media here and the importance of it, but also the kind of, kind of some warnings and the danger of it as well of becoming just a social media ally. But one of the things that's happening is that you can't get away with anything now, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing that you, uh, and, and, and obviously I say that in context, there's still tons sure, of, sure. there's still tons of horrible things happening. No, I understand, I understand exactly what you're saying. But, yeah. but it, you know, anybody can pull out a cell phone right now and capture some old guy saying 50 years ago, I would have strung you up. Um, you, you can't get away with anything now. And so that is both a, uh, Social media can be so horrible. Uh, people are so horrible to each other on social media. And it can, you know, there's all these like pointless, senseless, dumb arguments that are happening on social media. But I think one of the positive things now is you can't get away with anything. And do you think that with social media and with kind of the the inability to hide now from saying or doing any shitty things, racist things, xenophobic things, uh, there's a good chance somebody's going to pull out a phone and catch you and it's going to be on social media and, you know, and whatever happens after that's going to happen. Do you think that 
in this day that we're in with social media on our side, as it were, do you think we can eradicate? Like, do you think that things like white supremacy uh, can, and when I say eradicated, I say that knowing that it's never going to be completely eradicated, but can we like kill white supremacy with the kind of the level of transparency that we have now of all things happening in the world? Can that happen? Or am I delusional to think that we could actually eradicate some of these things based on the fact that you cannot hide anymore? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that we can, um, eradicate white. I mean, eradicating white supremacy would not actually be that challenging of a thing to do. Um, I think like materially, I mean, what we're really talking about at the most basic level is passing policy, <laughs> like, you know, and these are policies that we've passed throughout history. Like we've paid reparations before we've, um, invested in communities, wealth development for we've, you know, provided free education for, I mean, none of the thing, none of the things that it would take to end white supremacy at a structural and policy based level, um, are impossible. It, it, it really just is a matter of like will and appetite, which obviously, you know, we have to incentivize our politicians to do it. And over half of the country, um, you know, is not invested in, in addressing those things. So like, that's where this work, the social media thing comes in. You know, I'm, um, I'm on the fence about whether social media is a net positive for these movements or a net negative, because there are a few different elements. The one you named of like performative activism, um, you know, allowing people to like post something really quickly, press share and then be done. Yep. yep. Um, is an impediment to the movement. Right. Um, well, you know, it does spread knowledge, but I think net is an impediment to the movement. You know, I think that the reason why we keep seeing these videos come out of people harassing black people for just existing. And, you know, you would think every time I see the video, I'd be like, you would think white people, at least just for right now would know like, camera in my face <laughs> like don't say you can't come in this building after you show me your key or like yep, i'm gonna yep. call the police and they sell you're an african-american man like but the reason why we keep seeing these videos is because this happens everywhere every day it's all the time it's it's all the time so i think what happens when like say like an amy cooper is like elevated then all white people get to bash amy cooper Amy Cooper, we hate Amy Cooper. Share, 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 share. And not reflect on how like you may have been Amy Cooper in a different scenario under different circumstances a few days ago or yep. last week. And yep. so I think like, I don't think we're going to make people afraid out of behaving in racist ways because if people had the locus of control internally to like filter it, <laughs> I think most people would. It's like, no, you're asking for something that's in somebody to not come out. But that's why I'm saying like, I'm not going to spend all my attention on white Americans, like not mistreating people of color on an individual basis. Like that's kind of a non-starter for me because I think the proposition is that like, well, because of social media, white people can see it more. Well, in the thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties, there were literal signs (laughs) that said black people can only eat here or black people can only drink here. Like and there are still white people in the North who are like, well, I mean, that's just kind of the Southern way of life. I don't know if we should get involved in that. So like we, white people have always been able to see it. Um, I, my greatest fear is that like, I do want racist people to be called out and held accountable 
But at the end of the day, like, it's until we change racist policies, like, nothing is going to change. And white people um, scapegoating other white people is probably not bringing us closer to the version of white ally that we really need to create a movement that addresses um, the material uh, needs of communities of color. Yeah, I, I, I love how you kind of pointed out that, you know, I think it was probably mostly white people that called Amy Cooper out, right? And said, and tried to make a point. It was both, you know, shitting on her, but it was also saying, I'm not her. I would never do that. And the re- I think what, what white people need to do more of is to realize that they are that racist. If they've ever, if they've ever uh, uh, kind of without thinking about it, cross the street because uh, a certain black person, maybe with a hoodie on, was walking on their side of the street, right? And just like kind of nonchalantly, like, walk, you know, cross the street or made an excuse to like get out of the way. Like that's just as racist as what Amy Cooper did to Christian Cooper in the park that day. Uh, and, and all the time, all over the place, there are, there are different times when we've all done horrifically racist things in the name of, oh, I had to go this way, or I had to do that thing, or look what they, like, this could have happened, right? And we don't think about it as racism. And so instead of, instead of seeing what Amy Cooper did, taking a deep breath, like waiting a hot second before responding and saying, have I ever done that? And then, and then we can start thinking about it and really sitting in that and saying, oh yeah, I have. Here's where I've done that in my life. Here's where I'm currently doing that in my life. It might not be, you know, in, in Central Park with a person standing in front of us, but it can look, to, you know, so many different ways. And so I think so many more of us need to. I think that is one of the, the worst things about social media. And you've pointed that out. I think I've pointed it out. So I don't want to belabor the point, but we, it's so quick. It's so easy to push retweet. It's so easy to push share and put it in our Instagram stories and just share it out instead of just sitting there, like really sitting in it and saying, is that me? So I, I love the, I love the, the, this kind of new, it's not new, it's not new, but for a lot of people, it's new. This, I, this conversation about being an anti-racist versus just saying, I'm not a racist. No, no, it's not good enough to just say I'm not a racist or to try not to be a racist. It, we need to be anti-racist because so many of us in so many different ways have been racist for years. Yeah. And like, Me, honestly, who cares? Yeah. Who cares if like, and I don't mean this to be harsh, but like, who cares if you're not racist? Like, I think. Right. You, know, you don't get a, you don't get an award for that. Um, you know, that's the bare minimum of, of what we should be as human beings. I think that like, you know, that's such a low bar and threshold to place on white people as a collective. Um, because I think and believe that white people can do better than that and are better than that. than you know, being neutral in something that is benefiting you um, and disadvantaging other people. So, you know, I think that like we've created this good, bad binary, this really dangerous anti-racism work where if you're a good white person, then that means you're not racist. You don't have a racist bone in your body. You have no prejudice against anybody else. You're a bad person if you have any prejudices or if you have any racist ideologies or whatever the case may be. And the reality is, is that we've all been acculturated and socialized in a racist society. So to, so to think that any individual was so special that like all people of color are experiencing racism, but you're so special that you have somehow removed yourself from this dynamic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you had the power, the superpower to do that, then why haven't you taught everybody else how to completely divest from the system and structure of racism? So it's like, you know, I think that this idea of being not racist is something that only serves to benefit the, um, 
uh, ego is probably the wrong word, but I think the conscience of white America, where it's like, we don't need you to be not racist. We need you to be anti-racist. We need you to live a life that is in dedication to ending these structures. And, um, you know, there's a lot of really great quotes about this, but to be anti-racist um, is a pursuit. It's a journey. Um, and I think that, you know, to believe that you have to have no racist bone in your body to be effective to this movement um, is to effectively say that I will create a set of conditions that are impossible that justifies my ability to stand on the sideline. Like, oh, well, I didn't say or don't say the N-word, so I don't have any obligation to do anything else about this. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, that is of no utility. People who care about animals, um, they may not eat meat or they may not use products tested on animals or they may adopt an animal versus going to a breed or people who care about the environment uh, may not drive a, a car at all or they may drive a fuel efficient car or uh, they may drive an electric vehicle or they may carpool or ride their bike or recycle or compost. Um, if you are an anti-racist, what daily lived habits, um, you know, undergird that lifestyle and if you can't name that or list that or if you don't have an ideology around that that is deep and personal then i mean um then you tell me what then i, I think you know we waste time caring about those labels yeah you're either really anti-racist or 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 the movement can't use you and that's just the reality of where we are right now i love that super helpful you're either anti-racist or the movement can't use you because it's not good enough to be just not racist. Um, and the truth is, if you're just at, if you're kind of are fine with not racist, you're probably racist in a lot of ways all the time. If you're fine with just like staying there, because it's not a position you can really maintain. You have to be act like, as you pointed we out. We have to stop putting racism like on this pedestal where it's like, oh my gosh, to be racist is like, whenever people think about a racist person, they think about like, the Ku Klux Klan. Yep. And so it's like anyone who's under the threshold of the Ku Klux Klan gets to say, I'm not racist. I mean, the president of the United States can go on TV and say, I'm the least racist person. I don't have a racist bone in my body. And it's like, some people will argue, you know, on his side that they're, that they're not racist. So I'm like, if Donald Trump isn't racist, <laughs> if we can't objectively look at Donald Trump and be like, this is a racist person. Yep. Then, I mean, what are we doing here? Like, yeah. obviously, you know, so I think we need to lower the threshold of that and understand that like, we are all products of this socialization. All white people are acculturated in a racist society. And so work against that system and structure. Um, that is the, you know, the, the stated goal and expectation of this. Um, if you spend a lot of time worrying about who's racist or who's not, um, or feeling guilty because you, the racist systems and structures have impacted who you are and how you see the world, then like that is of no utility to the people that you actually say you care to help and support. Let's begin to uh, wrap this conversation up. You've been so gracious to give us uh, of course. Th this time on a Sunday, no less. Um, so just a couple more questions. One is, um, just so you can be thinking about it, the next question is going to be, you know, besides people beginning to follow and engage with you and your team on overcoming racism, uh, what are some resources that you would point people to? So that's next. So just be thinking about that in the back of your mind. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I do want to, I do want to ask you, like, how are you, you know, your platform has begun to grow exponentially over the last few, you know, weeks and months. Uh, you know, recently you've talked with Mashable, you've talked with, you know, there's a great 
uh, five, six minute video out there with now this and the Washington Post. And I'm sure those opportunities will begin to grow. Oh, and let's give a damn. Uh, let's not forget to mention that. No, <laughs> right. You're supposed to mention that first. That's right. Right? No, no, no. I'm just kidding. But you, you, you're, you're beginning to engage and you're beginning to be recognized as uh, uh, I don't like I hate the word. I hate the phrase thought leader, but you're going to be somebody that can speak on these issues and can like, you know, engage on these, because again, this is not a shtick for you. This is not a new thing for you. You've been been doing this for decades now, even though you're, you know, a young man yourself. So how are you dealing with all that? And what are you hopeful for expectant for as the kind of movement begins to grow? You know, um, I've never sought out to be like a thought leader or famous uh, or, to have a bunch of followers. I mean, I think that there's some utility in having a lot of people have eyes on your work. I think that it can also be a distraction. Um, And, you know, I'd rather have 200 really committed, dedicated, um, bought in, invested followers who, you know, really supported our work, you know, in action and in in word, um, than 200,000 followers who like, maybe double tap my pictures, but don't engage in our work in a more holistic way. So I think, I think a lot of that stuff is a trap. And I think that when people start to play to the potential, um, I I don't know, profile or exposure of this work, then it starts to dilute their uh, ability. You know, anti-racism work isn't something that I do. It's who I am. There's, you be hard pressed to find anybody who's known me intimately over the course of my life, close friends, family members um, who knew me before I started caring about issues of justice and started speaking out about issues of justice. So, I mean, how am I handling it? I mean, it's um, it's a step that I'm prepared for in the ways in which I can build a platform that impacts others, but it's not gonna change the way that we look at and see the work. Um, you know, we've done a lot of things in the midst of this boon when you have people who are, you know, go on most anti-racism Instagram pages right now and just scroll down the page and see when it was founded. And most of them have been like most of the ones, some of them who have huge followings now um, were founded after George Floyd's death. And we see people advertisements of programs like the Cornell program. And we see a bunch of people um, rushing to the space. Well, in the midst of this, like we've been turning a lot of people down. Like we have very clear structures of like, what is the right form of partnership and we do like long-term engagement so anyone who called us and said hey you know we have a bucket of money can you come in and do an hour-long talk about racism like that's an immediate no like it doesn't matter um how much the potential of the contract would be you know we work with people over the course of at least a year um we look at systems and structures the training is ongoing um you know and so um i am Please, that more people are paying attention to this work, but I don't think anybody who's in my space wants their platform to grow because black people are being murdered. Like I want my platform to grow because we are helping to create school systems across the country that are healthy for black and brown children to exist in mm. and are healthy for white children to exist in from the construct that these systems and structures evaluate what privilege is and you know some of the toxic realities of what comes with that um, and introducing people to diverse perspectives and backgrounds and lived experiences. So, you know, uh, I will be excited when that is the vehicle that drives the next big boost in our platform, when people start to really see 
the work and how successful the work has been and how healing the work has been and the tears that have been shed and the systems that have changed and the belief that has been inspired in the hearts of children and families who've sent their kids to schools that have um, made changes to policies that, you know, criminalize blackness in these spaces. Like, I want that to be our legacy, um, mm. you know? And so I've always spoken about racism, spoken out of, against racism, like for, like I said, for as long as I remember. So I'll keep using my platform to do that. If more people continue to listen to that and it's beneficial to them, great. But honestly, like more than anything, we should be centering the voices of, you know, black women, black trans folk, um, black people who are not able-bodied, black people who are poor. I mean, we should be um, yes. centering the voices of people yeah. with multiple intersection marginality because, you know, um, even from my platform, a lot of that comes with the privileges I have of being a man and being heterosexual and being cisgender um, and some of the class privileges that I navigate, um, you know, in my life now. So um, I want to use that platform to continue to expand other people's platforms who, you know, don't have the same institutional microphone that I've been given. Based on what you just shared, I think a lot of people, maybe every person that's listening, will and should go follow what you all are doing because it's wonderful work that I think will help them in the long term. But besides, again, besides the work that you're doing at Overcoming Racism, like point people to resources that you're learning from or or resources you've been telling people to go, you know, white folks to go uh, consume, again, whether that's a, a talk or, you know, a book or a documentary or a show or something that will help them continue to um, kind of cultivate this uh, becoming an anti-racist? Yeah, you know, I think this is a hard question because I think that there are, like, there are so many good resources out there. Like, if I were to just list, like, Instagram people that you, were, you should follow, like, I feel like I'd be listing all day and then I'd still miss so many important people. I think people are at different stages of their journey and there's so many good scholars. I think I, I'd rather maybe give guidelines and direct people towards, like, specific things. Um, sorry, I dropped my AirPod. Go for it. See, I'd rather give guidelines than perhaps direct people towards specific things. You know, Great. one thing is, like, um, Robin D'Angelo and um, Robin D'Angelo's White Virgility and even McKinney's How to Be Anti-Racist, you know, great books. Um, but I also think um, it's important that we remember that, like, there's more scholarship than that, just that. And that, you know, for every Robin D'Angelo who's written a book about whiteness, there's a black woman who's done the same thing. And so if you're going to pick up White Fragility, you know, maybe you pick up Nell Painter's The History of White People, um, or you pick up, you know, Sister Outsider from Audre Lorde, or you pick up Women, Race, and Class from Angela Davis, um, you know. And so thinking about that, um, I think for the same thing goes for Kendi, you know, obviously stamped from the beginning is a work that we use a lot in our intensives and um, how to be anti-racist is such a great title in terms of like, you know, everyone's like, how do I do this? And Kendi here, Kendi has this book that says, here's how, yeah. but you know, obviously there's a lot of scholarship beyond that as well. Um, that is canon um, to this work. And so I just think that I want people to seek out um, a diversity of resources. Um, there are so many good things, but I think beyond anything else, maybe first start by getting the historical perspective. The 1619 Project is under attack right now, so that may be a really good place. Usually when people start saying like, we need to ban this from the curriculum, we need to burn this book, we need to like, we need to get rid of this. That's the thing you should probably be reading and listening exactly. to because that's obviously like struck a nerve. So, you know, I would check out things that um, also place these issues in historical context. And I think the biggest thing is like, don't stop. Like, I think 
that the more you engage with these topics, um, the more that your eyes are open. And it makes me think about um, Frederick Douglass. You know, he writes in his autobiography about learning how to read. And there's this line that kind of strikes me because you would think that when he learns how to read, he would be like, it was just amazing feeling. I mean, literally, he's, you know, his mistress taught him the alphabet and he teaches himself from just the alphabet how to read. Like you would think he would write, and he's a very brilliant writer, so you would think he would write the beautiful prose of, um, you know, all of the different, you know, beautiful new worlds and realities of what reading opened to him. And what he wrote basically was that like he would have likened the position of the most vile reptile to his own. So basically just saying like, now that he understood these systems and structures and the evil intent behind them, and mm. you know, he had a scholarly background to understand exactly what's happening to him and his people, um, you know, there's a burden that rests upon him where it was like he was free mentally, right? And it's like you can't enslave a person once that mental freedom is there. And so he had to find a way to get off the plantation, which he eventually does. I think for white folks who are reading, yeah, I mean, you're going to run into some hard truths and it make you, may make you feel not great or kind of sick once you start seeing like just how um, structural this is across all these different dynamics. But I think once, you know, you can see the interconnectedness of these systems by, um, you know, exposing yourself to a diverse set of sources, um, how much more will you be equipped to help us dismantle these structures and live in a world that is actually mirrors the values that America says that it's about. Like people get mad at black people for fighting for these issues, but like America wasn't even a democracy until 1965 when the Voting Rights Act is passed. Mm -hmm. So who made America democracy? It was black folks who made America live up to that promise, yeah. or at least in, in, in part. And so, you know, people can hold against us, but like if America will ever be the land of the free, it'll be because of movements led by people of color and people can hate us for it, but we're the ones who are fighting to make America be what it said it was on paper. I mean, so anyone who loves America or who's truly invested in America should support this. But I think people have actually fallen in love with white supremacy and not actually the concept of the United States, um, which, you know, promoted freedom and equity for all, even though obviously at a very hip, hip, from a hypocritical um, standpoint. Let's end there. So yeah. much more we could talk about. I didn't even get. Thank to you for your time. Yeah, I wanted to talk about reparations. Maybe we'll do a part two. Uh, to, we'll do a part uh, two. Yeah, we'll a, a whole, we'll do, definitely a whole podcast. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I that's why I didn't ask about it. I was like, man, we're hitting the ninety minute mark. Let's just do reparations later. Let's, I have I have yeah. other questions as well. Uh, Matthew Kincaid, an honor to speak with you. An honor to know you. Thank you so much for sharing with us. No, thank um, you. Um, thank you for doing your research. I, I really appreciate the. Um, thought behind all of your questions um so yeah uh, have a great rest of your day and if anything you need from me you know how to get in touch with me i appreciate it man well friends that's the show today i hope you enjoyed it i hope you were challenged i hope you learned a ton a massive thanks to matthew kincaid for joining me on the show today and thank you all for listening Many thanks to Red Cap for sponsoring this episode. We couldn't have done it without them. You can find links and more details about the show and more about our sponsor in the show notes at nicklapara.com or letsgiveadam.com. I, Nick Lapara, created this show. Chad Snavely produced it. Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family. You can reach me anytime, as always, at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'm sending so much love to each and every one of you. Stay safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.